Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Drugs, Addiction, and Recovery channel of the New Books Network. I'm Steve Beitler. And my guest today has written an important and riveting book that challenges virtually everything that many people believe and believe they know about drugs and drug policy. In 2021, Hachette Books published Undoing Drugs, The Untold Story of Harm Reduction and the Future of Addiction by Maya Solovitz. Thank you, Maya, for being here today. Thanks so much for having me. Maya is the author or co-author of eight books, including the bestseller Unbroken Brain and a classic on childhood trauma, The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog, which she wrote with Bruce D. Perry. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, for whom she is a contributing opinion writer, as well as the Washington Post, Scientific American, Time, The Guardian, and The Atlantic. Undoing Drugs tells a long-running but largely unknown, story of how a few people and groups, propelled at first by the AIDS pandemic, swam against one of the most powerful policy tides in America, our nation's five decades-long war on drugs. The book is a personal and political history of harm reduction, a term that encompasses a philosophy, a set of health practices, and a call to action. Harm reduction is a powerful alternative to conventional wisdom about drugs and drug policy. Harm reduction starts from a belief that the health and safety of drug users, their families, and their communities should be the top priority of drug policy. Maya's book offers more than a critique of the war on drugs. It shows us a path forward for drug policy. But before we look ahead, Let's start at the beginning. Maya, I'm curious about the personal and professional backstory to Undoing Drugs. How did you come to write it? Sure. So um, I myself um, am a person in recovery from cocaine and heroin addiction. And in 1986, I was injecting drugs in New York City, which was a pretty dumb place to be doing that at the time, since half of the people who were injecting were already infected unbeknownst to them and pretty much everyone else, they were already infected with HIV. Um, So I was visiting a friend, his friend was there, she told me that I was at risk. And I soon realized that um, I need if I wanted to avoid HIV, I would have to clean my needles with bleach and avoid sharing as much as possible. And because she provided practical information on how to protect myself and didn't just say, don't do that, um, I was able to avoid HIV until I got um, into recovery. So given that background, let's continue to start at the beginning. How would you define harm reduction? Right. So um, to me, harm reduction is any policy that focuses first on stopping people from getting hurt rather than stopping them from getting high. And it involves, it has many different pieces, but basically the focus is not on the drugs. The focus is on people and helping people have a better quality of life. And this, of course, then rapidly gets political because of inequality and racism and a lot of the other things that have driven our drug policy 
historically. So given that definition, let's turn to undoing drugs for a minute. How would you describe the major themes or the key ideas of your book? Sure. So first, I'm introducing the idea of harm reduction, which a lot of people don't understand. And a lot of people don't realize that it is an idea that has a history. They just think, oh, it's this nice little phrase. Okay, we'll focus on harm. Um, you know, Hippocrates said that or something. Um, so, um, you know, they, they just think that it just kind of um, is this phrase that came into use in public health. And they don't realize that it's actually a movement a movement started by people who use drugs as well as scholars and academic researchers. And so the book tells the story of that movement. It doesn't tell the full story because otherwise it would be a 10,000 page book and nobody would read it. But um, it sort of gives people an introduction to the idea and to some of the people who developed it and to why it's really important to change policy so that the primary focus is harm, not highs. Uh, I want to get to some of the people that you uh, describe and talk about in the book in a minute. But first, when many people hear Liverpool, they think of the Beatles. But could you talk a little bit about the Liverpool origins of harm reduction and uh, how the story uh, started there? Sure. So yeah, um, uh, Liverpool, if you ever go there, you will see lots of Beatles related stuff. Um, and But it did also house this other revolution. And so basically, there has always sort of been the idea that we should reduce harm. It goes back to Hippocrates in medicine, first do no harm. Um, and in drug policy, there have been historically ideas about, you know, reducing harms associated with drugs. But what didn't exist before Liverpool in the 1980s was a coherent philosophy and movement to get this idea adopted in drug policy and starting with fighting HIV. And so Amsterdam and um, the Netherlands in general had long had a policy that we can now see as harm reduction. And that was even occasionally called that they did not arrest people for buying and selling marijuana under certain circumstances. It's quasi legal. They're not officially legal, but basically you can go into a coffee shop and buy it. And that's been true since the 70s. A drug user um, named Nico Adrians there founded the world's first needle exchange before HIV even hit, it was in response to a hepatitis B epidemic. And he also founded the world's first drug user union and got public funding for it. So they were able to have a voice for people who take drugs in drug policy, starting there in the Netherlands. And the people in Liverpool knew about what was going on um, in the Netherlands. They also knew that not far away, Edinburgh in Scotland was having a massive outbreak of HIV among young injection, injection drug users. And there were many such people because there was high unemployment, a lot of despair, um, factories had closed, people didn't feel like they had any opportunities. And so these people in their late teens and early 20s all started injecting drugs. And the city freaked out. They decided, okay, well, 
we've got to stop this. So let's like, you know, crack down on the needle supply. Let's arrest these users. Let's um, get rid of methadone because that's like not a good idea. It's too soft. And they basically ended up creating a situation where they had more people sharing fewer needles and HIV was about. And so the first time they ever tested, they found that half of these young people were already HIV positive. So Liverpool sees this and they basically have the same conditions in terms of high unemployment, particularly among youth and despair and economic distress of all types. And they have basically a big heroin supply. They have everything Edinburgh has except no HIV as of yet among drug users. So they're like, okay, maybe we can take this idea from the Dutch and we can also expand methadone and even heroin prescribing because that was legal in the UK. And we can attract people into getting help whether they want to quit drugs or not. And so they did this. They actually got the Thatcher government on board um, and Liverpool never had an HIV outbreak the way Edinburgh did. Um, In fact, the UK, the highest rate of um, HIV infection among IV drug users was similar. It was about 1%. And that was similar to the population rate in the United States, which is about 1%. Um, In New York City, in contrast, we had 50%, just like Edinburgh did. Um, So it was an enormous success. And they wanted to share this idea because they thought they had come up with something that could really be useful. And so they started a journal and they started speaking around the world and just trying to spread this idea, having conferences, all of that kind of thing. And so that is how it originates um, in Liverpool, even though there's strands of this idea that float around for a very long time. One of the features of your book are the thumbnail sketches and the biographies of people who have been important to this movement. And I'd like you to talk about um, a couple of them. And I'm thinking first of uh, Edith Springer and um, then perhaps Stephanie Comer um, as just two examples um, of people who have been really crucial to this. Could you uh, tell us a little bit about those folks? Sure. So Edith met Alan Parry, who was one of the Liverpoolians who um, founded harm reduction. And he had come to New York to spread the word. And her boss was too busy to take a meeting with this random dude from Liverpool. So she met with him. She was working in an AIDS agency at the time because she had given up working on drug treatment because it was too depressing. Um, (laughs) And then um, anyway, so she meets Alan and he basically tells her, Everything that she thinks about drugs and addiction is wrong. Um, And the work you're actually already doing has a name, and that's harm reduction. Because what she was already doing was she was working um, with a woman named Yolanda Serrano, who led a group called ADAPT. And they were already going out into um, shooting galleries to teach people to use bleach to protect themselves. Now, they would have preferred to hand out clean needles, but that was illegal, and they just wanted to get the information and the practical way of helping them to people as quickly as possible. So um, Edith now learns that what she was doing was harm reduction, and she becomes enamored of the idea. She goes and visits Liverpool. She like um, has this breakthrough in um, Alan Parry's living room where she's like, I am going to bring this to the United States. This is my life's mission. And she literally trained 
thousands of people in how to do harm reduction. A lot of them who were in traditional addiction treatment, um, which has traditionally been hostile to harm reduction because they see it as enabling. So she really helped spread the word there. And she trained a lot of the people who became the movement's leaders. And Stephanie Comer comes in because she was one of the earliest funders. She was the earliest significant funder of the harm reduction movement. And she was the heiress to the land's end fortune, which does not generally make you think about people who are homeless and injecting drugs. Um, uh, So she was a very unlikely person to be um, in this cause. And she doesn't have a personal connection, like a family member with addiction or anything like that. She just, um, her father uh, sold the company and got really rich. And she got put on the board of the family foundation um, to decide, well, what should we you know, do for philanthropy? And her mother happened to see Dave Purchase, who's another pioneer of the movement. She happened to see him on TV. And she's like, look, this guy's giving out needles. Like, why don't we fund this? Nobody else is funding it. <laughs> And um, you know, they didn't quite realize, I think, when they first took it on, like how controversial it was going to be and why people were staying away from funding it. Um, but we're all very glad that she did because she allowed um, the movement um, uh, in the United States to take shape under something that was first called the Harm Reduction Working Group and eventually became the National Harm Reduction Coalition. And so, uh, you know, she helped... Uh, fund the very first needle exchange programs um, throughout the country and network them and get them sort of understanding this philosophy and what other things they should be doing. And one of those people was a guy named Dan Big, who um, was located in Chicago. And he, without him, I mean, he literally saved tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of lives because what he did was say, why do we only have naloxone available in hospitals and ambulances. Now, naloxone is a non-toxic medication that can reverse an opioid overdose. The worst side effect you're generally going to get is if you use too much of it, you're going to put a person who's physically dependent into severe withdrawal. If you use the right amount, they will just come out of the overdose and and not be too sick. Um, But anyway, it's better than dying, right? So... um, So he got that medicine, which, you know, the only possible way to misuse it is to torture people with addiction. Um, You know, you can't get high on it. It's the opposite. Um, So he, you know, sort of went um, around the country. He had a duffel bag of the stuff. He got pharmaceutical companies to give it to him for free or low cost. And he talked people across the country into starting their own programs or if they already were running a needle exchange into adding naloxone distribution and training. And all of the stuff that we hear now about naloxone distribution into the community starts with the work of Dan Big. So that was enormous. And you know that medication has been around since the 70s. It should never have been made a prescription medication because it's like, you know, you could shoot up a baby with a ton of it and nothing would happen. Like you shouldn't be injecting babies with anything. But um, right. um, I'm not suggesting that for anyone no, who's no, listening. I'm not advocating anything like that. But the point is that it's not poisonous. 
you can't overdose on it. And if somebody is actually overdosing on something that isn't an opioid, um, if there is an opioid in the mix, that's usually enough to bring the person out of the overdose. But even if there's no opiate in the mix, it's not going to harm the person. Now, if they happen to be having a heart attack and you're not treating the heart attack, they're still going to die of the heart attack. But um, it, the naloxone isn't going to make it worse. So, um, you know, so it's um, it's a really good thing. It should be, I believe, in every first aid kit. And I've been making that case publicly ever since I learned about Dan's work, which was in about the late 90s. And, um, you know, it's just kind of, it's great to see, like everybody knows what naloxone is now, but um, it is also just horrendous that it is not over the counter and is not in everybody's hands right now, because if you have it, you know, it's much easier to save somebody if you have the antidote to the poison than if you don't have it. Um, I wanted to uh, ask you about uh, harm reduction in terms of how it alters our understanding of not just addiction, but recovery. Um, sure. There's a there's a section in the book and parts of the book that talk about a different concept of recovery. And I'd, I'd like you to expand on that a little bit because it seems pretty central to harm reduction. Yeah. So um, before harm reduction came along, there was this idea that you know, people who are actively addicted would not take any steps whatsoever to protect themselves. And that, you know, you could give them clean needles, but they wouldn't bother using them because they like sharing. Um, there was sort of all this nonsense about how, you know, people with addiction are zombies who do not have any control over their behavior. So there's nothing you can do with them unless they get into abstinence or, you know, yeah. Um, so they that was the perception of the mainstream addiction treatment industry and a lot of 12-step groups um, a lot of people in 12-step groups before harm reduction came along. And then harm reduction comes and lo and behold, people do use clean needles. People are not just selfish pigs who won't save their friend if they happen to have the antidote to the thing that they're dying of. Um, in fact, some people will even use less drugs themselves in order to be able to be there to help their friends. So the whole concept of people with addiction as these kind of selfish zombies that are unreachable, harm reduction debunks that because you see, wait a minute, these people who are still using, who have no intention of becoming abstinent, are doing these more healthy behaviors in this context. So they're not simply powerless. Um, and, you know, while that can be a useful concept for somebody to apply to their own sense of whether they can control their drug use or not, um, it is not useful to generalize about people who use drugs or even people with addiction that way. So, okay, so that's how, um, you know, harm reduction says, wait a minute, your definition of addiction is kind of not quite right. Um, so, okay, so what about recovery? Well, what happens there? is that if addiction isn't this sort of binary, you're abstinent or you're a zombie kind of state, then recovery isn't that binary thing either. Um, and so you can talk about recovery and, and harm reductionists do as being any positive change as, be, as viewed by the person who's making the change. And so what that means is 
if you start using clean needles, you are on a recovery pathway because you have reduced the harm associated with your addiction. If you cut back, if you switch from crack to weed, if you um, you know get a job and reduce your use so that um, you can do that well, um, all of those things are pathways to recovery. And recovery doesn't have to look like a person who's totally continuously abstinent and attends 12-step groups. That is fine for some people and more power to you if that's your pathway. Whatever works for you, I think is good. Um, but if, for example, recovery works best for you when you um, completely abstain from alcohol, but sometimes smoke a little weed, or um, you you know avoid coke and heroin, um, but sometimes take some psychedelics, um, or if you're 100% abstinent, or if you're smoking crack on weekends and that's working for you, you know, again, it's going to be very different for different people. And, you know, um, I am not the person who could smoke crack on weekends. Um, but, um, the, they do exist. I, I was shocked, but they do. Um, and so whatever, you know, working towards improving your life, improving your quality of life, improving your connections with others will make you healthier. And that will tend to reduce the harm associated with your drug use. And the other reason that redefining recovery this way is so important is because if you relapse from the abstinence perspective, you are seen as no longer in recovery. So you go from, you know, I had three years to like, now I have zero days and I'm starting from scratch again. And that promotes this kind of effort attitude where people are just like, okay, well, I already took one sip. I may as well have a giant binge and throw in some Coke because um, I've already blown it. My recovery is already over. And so when you see recovery as being more of a process, not this like black and white thing where if the substance enters your body, you are no longer clean, uh, which I hate. That word is ridiculous because it implies that people who are still using are dirty. Um, so anyway, the point is that redefining recovery can be helpful even for people whose goal is abstinence. Because um, if you, lots of people who are seeking abstinence will slip a number of times before they get into stable abstinence. And that is typically part of the process of recovery. It doesn't mean you failed. And so getting recognition that that person is still on a recovery path um, I think is, is really important and can definitely reduce harm. The thing that I think, which I don't think will ever be adopted, but I think should, is that um, in 12-step programs where people do value long-term abstinence, um, I think that, say, let's say somebody has 10 years and they slip for a couple of days and they get 90 days back, I think they get their 10 years back. Um, because that way, it's not like you're loosey-goosey and saying that somebody who's still active has 10 years, um, but you're also not throwing away those 10 years of actual experience and lived life and stuff that actually really matters and saying that doesn't count. Because I think that does harm by making people just like, like the hell with it. <laughs> so... And that's an example of, of the, how harsh um, drug policy can be and has been in America. The, the binary either or nature of it, I think, is very much shown in your description of 
12-step programs and definitions of abstinence. So given all this, why, why do you feel that uh, America has been so resistant to harm reduction? What is it about Americans and our character or our experience that has uh, made this a, a difficult, slow sell in the United States? Well, the main reason is racism. And that is because our drug policy only makes sense if you take racism into account, because it isn't the case that we had some people sit down and say, okay, cigarettes should be legal because they're safer than the illegal drugs, because you couldn't do that. They aren't. Um, they kill half their long-term users. Um, so, um, so, you know, when you look at how did we actually get our drug policy, everything other than the creation of the FDA was basically a series of racist panics or anti-immigrant panics related to, oh my God, these foreign people are doing this substance and they're going to seduce our women with it. Literally the seduce our women part is in almost all of the rhetoric. Um, so anyway, a little insecurity on the part of white men there, but the- um, <laughs> You think? Well, I mean, you got to laugh at this because otherwise you'd cry. And what is really fascinating to me is that the moment we started to see the um, overdose crisis and opioid misuse as being white, suddenly harm reduction was cool. Suddenly everybody was saying harm reduction. Now, you know, it's in part of national drug policy when in fact for many years you couldn't even say the phrase if you wanted to get a grant. Um, you know, so, um, and, and literally we had representatives in the United States going around taking the phrase harm reduction out of international drug policy documents because it was so threatening to the idea of prohibition. So, um, so what changed about this latest drug epidemic well, it's white people, right? And so, you know, this is not to say that um, opioids are harmless drugs and that like um, everybody who supports current drug policy is a racist, but the effect and the original intent of our drug policy is racist. And when we realize that, oh, suddenly when we think these are people like us, we want to save their lives and keep them alive long enough to recover, even if they're still using. But when they're people like them, oh, we should let them die as an example to the children. That is basically racist. And, or if it's not racist, it's something else that's really messed up. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, it's treating people as objects, not as, you know, human beings who are sacred. So I think, Anyway, um, so that is kind of a very good indication of why harm reduction took so long to catch on. Now, the other piece of it is just there is this Puritan thread in American culture, and we do have this fear that you know someone somewhere is having more fun than us, and that like we can't um, we can't have that happening. We also have this ridiculous fear that if people have access to intoxicants, those bad people are just going to laze around and take intoxicants and they are not going to be productive and they won't take care of their kids and they'll just be kind of wastrels. Um, in reality, the people who end up misusing drugs in ways that look hedonistic, the majority of such people are suffering some kind of emotional pain, whether it's they're mentally ill or about to be mentally ill, they're having the prodromal things related to it that can make their personality be very weird and then they can't have friends and then they get bullied, um, or they were, you know, abused or 
uh, lost their parents or had any other kind of traumatic disaster in their childhood, or they are living in a world where people like them have no hope. Now, in a world where people have hope and access to good jobs and access to purpose and meaning and love, most people are not going to get addicted. The ones who do in that world are going to be people with mental illness. Um, and you know there are ways to manage that, which is basically like medicate them or therapize the um, mental illness without, um, uh, you know, so that people find better ways of coping than just tuning out. Um, so when we think about addiction, we have to think about the whole context of it and not just about, um, you know, oh my God, drugs. Um, and so America's sort of pure puritanical fears and our whole idea that like everybody must be fully independent, which nobody's fully independent since like we're all born by some, born by a mother <laughs> and that person had to take care of us or somebody else did. Otherwise, we wouldn't have survived infancy. <laughs> you know, um, human beings are fundamentally interdependent, not independent. And so, you know, the our fears about addiction are sort of these fears that like we're going to lose our free will and we're going to be taken over by this demon drug. And that is really not how addiction works. Um, you know, you can certainly have experiences, and I certainly did, where you find yourself desperately wanting a drug that you really hate and you know it's going to make you feel awful and you can't stop yourself from taking it. And that feels pretty terrible. Um, but it is not the case that it steals your soul or permanently robs your will or any of this kind of stuff. It is a coping mechanism that spins out of control. And when you recognize that, okay, let's find a better way to cope, right? Not let's just make everybody feel so horrible that that should fix it because of course these people are hedonists. So if you make them be feel unpleasant, then that should fix them. But that isn't the problem. They don't have too much pain. They have too little hope. Uh, given uh, your comments about uh, racism's centrality to the war on drugs, um, it's a good segue to Michelle Alexander's book, which she published in 2010. It's called The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. And could you talk a little bit about why her book has proven to be so critical to changes in the understanding of the drug war and drug policy? Well, for many years, uh, the Black community was really torn over drugs. And a lot of people felt like the only thing, and they were told that the only thing that was going to work is just crack down harder and crack down harder. And Michelle Alexander's book shows us that, well, certain people got locked up in that big crackdown and other people got, you know, nice expensive rehabs and those were the white people. Um, and the, the whole crackdown was basically a political ploy to get politicians elected. And they were doing this on the backs of black people and they were doing it in part by saying, well, look, this is what the black community wants. They say they want more enforcement of this. 
Um, and what she pointed out was that this enforcement is doing enormous harm to our communities and we need to be united against this way of dealing with it. And so once the white politicians no longer had the cover of black people saying the drug war is great, then um, you had to see the racism of it. Um, and so that is part of why that book was so enormously influential. The other part, of course, is within the black community, it gave people a greater understanding of what was going on. And also, um, it gave people a lot more compassion for people with addiction in the black community because, um, in the church, they had just kind of been seen as sinners, um, and they had been seen as kind of, those are the people who give us a bad name. Um, so it did an enormous service by allowing people to understand what was being done and by allowing them to recognize that like the problem isn't the fact that people white or black have addiction. The problem is that we are using racist measures that are ineffective and harmful to try to stop it. You mentioned earlier um, the opioid uh, epidemic, and um, I'm curious as to your thoughts about uh, how the what I would call the prevailing narrative on that epidemic is misleading or false or emblematic of existing policies. I'd be curious. Uh, as to your thoughts about that, given the prominence of those narratives in coverage of the opioid epidemic? Yeah. So um, the we created a story, and this again goes back to racism, because we created a story of white innocence in this um, uh, opioid crisis. And what was the way it was portrayed was evil drug companies dupe doctors into pushing these horrible drugs that don't work for chronic pain on people um, who were innocent patients, and then they were turned into scummy addicts. And so unlike those black people who were smoking crack and it was illegal, these people just went to their doctor and suddenly they turned into zombies. Um, again, that's not how addiction works. And in fact, 80% of people who misuse prescription opioids for the first time don't have a prescription for it. They are using somebody else's drugs. Um, so the vast majority of people who ended up addicted to prescription opioids were already using other drugs recreationally. Um, and this wasn't just like alcohol and marijuana, which 90% of them did, but so does pretty much 90% of the population at some point. Um, but it was cocaine and methamphetamine, which most of the population does not use. So what, what we're seeing here is that this is not just, you know, oh my God, doctors are turning pain patients into addicted people. This is people with addiction found a new source of drugs or people who were on their way to addiction found a new source of drugs. Um, and, you know, there wouldn't have been all those leftover opioids in people's medicine cabinets if the drugs were addicting all the pain patients because they would be hoarding them, <laughs> right? So, um, you know, the the horrible thing about this is that what it means for, pay, for people, and there's several million people in America who take opioids long-term for chronic pain, and they have been you know, they're now at four times greater risk of suicide if they 
get their medication taken away. Um, and what we did, we created this enormous, we cut the medical supply by more than half, largely by cutting off these patients who'd been on for many years and who were doing fine, according to themselves. Um, and now they're curled up in a ball and, um, you know, some of them are taking their lives. Um, now, this is not to say that all of them should have necessarily been on opioids, but once they are on them, simply taking them away whether their problem is pain, addiction, or both, simply taking away the medication is not going to help. Um, it's not going to cure the pain. It's not going to cure the addiction. And that means that people will resort to desperate measures like um, suicide or um using street drugs, which are much, much, much more dangerous. Like the other myth that the prescription opioid um, crisis people want to spread is the idea that, you know, oh, opioids are just like heroin pills and there's no difference between legal and illegal opioids. Well, if that were true, we wouldn't need the FDA and black market anything would be as good as you know, regulated products. It's ridiculous. Just saying it is ridiculous. Um, you know, um, and when you look at what happened with fentanyl, which was completely predictable and which we predicted, um, you know, there's a thing called the iron law of prohibition. And basically what it says is that like, it's a really silly and simple idea. Smaller things are easier to smuggle. So if you crack down on something, you will generate more potent drugs because it, they're easier to smuggle, but more potent drugs are also more dangerous because it takes less of them to overdose on. And when you're talking about something like fentanyl or some of its derivatives, these are 110,000, many exponents greater than the risk of heroin, which isn't insubstantial. Um, so it is really um, a mess that we've created. And I just... I feel really, really awful for the people who are suffering pain right now because they are being denied medications that work for them um, because other people have addiction. And that's not fair and that's not okay. And it's another example of using people as instruments, which is just not good. Um, so the, you know, we need to listen to people in pain and stop listening to people who say, oh, nobody ever benefits from opioids for chronic pain because I can give you a thousand of them tomorrow. Um, and you can say, oh, well, they just believe they're benefiting. They're not really benefiting. Well, okay, you're not believing people about their own lives. And you are also not believing there actually is evidence that shows that opioids do work for some people for chronic pain. They're also terrible for some people with chronic pain. You just don't know who's who. And the same thing is true for lots of classes of drugs, like antidepress antidepressants in particular. So, you know, you give one person Prozac and they're better than well and everything's great. You give somebody else, it makes them suicidal. You give it to someone else, it has zero effect. Uh, now, does this mean this is a terrible drug? No, it means you've got to make sure you give it to the right person. And we don't know how to do that yet in terms of like, you know, okay, we'll just test your genes and we'll know because we don't have such tests yet. But given that we do not have anything better for acute pain and we do not have anything better for a lot of different types of chronic pain, just taking that away and not providing um, help is just evil as far as I'm concerned. I wanted to shift gears a little bit and ask you about harm reduction in terms of the pandemic. 
And I'm curious as to your thoughts as to how the pandemic has affected and continues to affect the status and understanding of harm reduction. Sure. So um, one of the ways that harms that one of the ways that harm reduction really moved into the mainstream was because of the pandemic. And basically pretty early on in the pandemic, public health people who are familiar with the idea of harm reduction from this harm reduction movement and from the drugs field, um, they were like, you know, socializing is a fundamental human activity. Um, It's necessary for our mental health. We are not going to be able to abstain from it forever. And telling people to do so is just as unrealistic as telling them to not have sex and not take drugs. Um, So uh, let's do some harm reduction. What can we do? Okay, we can wear wear a mask. We can socially distance. Um, And so that became a way for people to understand the concept of harm reduction. It's not like never taking a risk. It's about minimizing the risk of the behavior that you're going to do anyway. And so that sort of brought new attention to the idea of harm reduction. And so that was definitely helpful. The other thing that happened was um, because of the pandemic, they had to loosen up a lot of the rules, like the ridiculous rules that make people have to go to a clinic every single day to get their methadone. Can't do that in a pandemic. Um, And lo and behold, when they let them take it home for two weeks at a time, they find that um, actually they did just as well and probably more people stay in treatment that way. Um, And so there were other things like telemedicine, which increased access and should stay legal. Um, The sad thing is that like we just can't get it through our heads that like, okay, we have this opioid problem. We have maybe 2 million people who are currently addicted. Um, They're not going to just go away. I mean, I guess we could kill them all off with fentanyl, but that seems to be what we're doing and is not a very good thing. Um, You know, so, okay, so what do we do? Basically, the best treatments we have, the only things proven to cut the death rate by 50% or more are methadone and buprenorphine. They are both opioids. So basically, the treatment for this is opioids. So stop taking them away from people and putting them onto unsafe street supplies. Now, again, this is not to say that everybody should be on medication forever or that abstinence is not, abstinence is not an absolutely valid pathway. It's just to say that in a market that is filled with fentanyl and things that are even stronger one slip is likely to be deadly. And if you're on medication, however, you are slightly protected. You're not 100% protected, but you are slightly, you are more than slightly, you have a 50% reduction in your risk of dying of overdose. You have a 50% reduction in your risk of dying of overdose because you have um, tolerance that is maintained by the medication. And so once that tolerance goes away, you are at enormous, enormous risk, which is why like people coming out of jail are something like four times more likely because oftentimes in jail, they don't have access to their drugs. Sometimes they do, which also shows that like, if we can't even keep them out of jails, how are we going to do this for the entire country? Um, But there you are. In addition to reading Undoing Drugs, what would you advise listeners to do Uh, in order to learn more about harm reduction and to support the work of various harm reduction groups? Sure. So um, the National Harm Reduction Coalition, who I am not paid by, um, has um, a website, which is harmreduction.org, and they have a lot of good information on there. 
Um, there are any your local needle exchange, your local um, if you happen to have one. Um, there are people who are organizing people who use drugs themselves. Um, there's a great group um, that's in New York and um, spreading elsewhere called Vocal. Um, there's also the National Users Union. Um, if you are a person who is using, it is great to organize with other people, um, and that can help you, um, stay safer. Another resource that I should mention for people who are, um, using opioids in particular, but also stimulants, cause they can sometimes have fentanyl in them too. Um, there is a hotline called never use alone, which if you Google it, you can find the information for, um, and basically they'll hang out with you on the phone. Um, and if you, you know, don't respond, they will send the ambulance. Um, and they have saved quite a few lives. And if you are sort of in a position where you, you know, have to use a loan or you just don't want to deal with other people and you can deal with, you know, somebody just on the speakerphone in the background and who's not going to bother you, um, then, you know, um, then that is a really, really useful resource. Also, carry naloxone, um, get trained in how to use it. It's really easy to use, especially the nasal spray form. Basically, all you do is, you know, put it up the person's nose um, and you can save a life. And it's kind of an amazing drug because a person who is overdosing will just turn sort of gray and they look almost dead. And then you give them this stuff and they wake up. Sometimes they're not very happy, but um, often they're just confused. Most of the time they're just confused and they're like, they just have no idea what happened because they were unconscious and that is disorienting. Um, but, you know, there's kind of nothing better than saving a life. So, um, so I recommend people doing that and, um, and just really thinking about, you know, how you can um, dismantle the drug war decriminalize fighting for decriminalization of possession is enormously helpful Um helping people, um, you know, realize that all of us are people who use drugs. Um, you know, there's very few people in this world who don't use something, whether it's caffeine or alcohol or antidepressants or, um, cigarettes or vaping or marijuana or whatever, like human beings are drug using creatures. Um, and this, you know, predates us evolutionarily. And I always say this, but if you look at cats and catnip, um, there is, uh, it is clear that they like to get high on that stuff. Um, and nobody really knows why. Some people think it, they like it um, and the liking is preserved because it acts as a sort of anti-insect um, um, thing, but the cats clearly enjoy it. <laughs> Maya, I think that's a wonderful uh, call to action and great advice. And I want to thank you so much for your time today and for all that you're doing to inform us and the nation and the world about drugs and drug policy. And I want to thank our listeners as well for joining us today on the New Books Network.